Good morning, everybody. Uh, it's good to see you. Uh, why don't you turn to the book of Ephesians, chapter 4, as we continue in our study in Ephesians. Um, Ephesians, chapter 4, I'm going to pray and ask God to uh, be with us uh, as we spend some time in His Word this morning. Uh, Father God in heaven, thank you uh, for a time to gather uh, with you, with your people, as your people. Uh, God, we thank you that you are worthy of praise. God, we thank you that in your goodness you stoop down to rescue us, uh, that you change us, that you shape us to be more like your son Jesus, and that you do that uh, out of your goodness and for our joy together. So God, I pray that uh, over the next few minutes as we look at your word, God, I pray that your Holy Spirit that inspired this text to be written would uh, indeed stir up our hearts and minds uh, to understand more of the gospel, the good news. God, I pray that by your Spirit you would change us, awaken dead hearts, uh, that you would um, revive weak hearts to love you more, to serve you more. Uh, God, to reflect you more. God, we ask you uh, to do these things for your glory and our joy. In Christ's name, amen. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 1 through 6. I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. This is God's word. Friends, the good news is not only that Jesus saves us, but also that he changes us that he transforms us personally in our character and also in relationships in the context of community together, both now and for eternity. Uh, today and the next week, we will be looking at Ephesians chapter 4. Uh, so uh, there'll be some stuff we can't hit today <laughs> that we'll do next week. But I want us to focus in here on the statement the Apostle Paul writes here. I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. It's a powerful statement. The Apostle Paul, uh, sent out by Jesus to proclaim the gospel, uh, writing what we have as uh, the New Testament, uh, much of the New Testament written by Paul, uh, by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he writes that we are, as Christians, to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. So I want us to look here. What, what is he talking about? What does it mean to be called? And what manner are we to walk? Right? Simple questions. Calling in the Bible uh, can mean two things. Calling is a designation of your identity. Like, hi, I'm called Jeremy. Right? You were called whatever you're called. Calling can also mean a direction, like, hey, I'm going to call you to come this way, or I'm going to call you to leave your land and to go that way. 
right? And if you look throughout Scripture, the Old Testament and the New Testament, time and time again, God is, is seen as the one calling his people, both identifying his people, saying, you, you are my people, you will be called according to my name, and you will be called, uh, identified as my people. And also he calls people directionally, saying, I'm going to call you to leave this land and to go to that land. I'm going to call you to go to this people or to do this, that, and the other. And Paul, as we've been looking in the book of Ephesians, the the first three chapters, he's been laying out there this identity that we have as Christians, right? Laying out there that we are are called to belong to Jesus. Like uh, so many times in the book of Ephesians, we've seen that in Christ, we are redeemed. In Christ, we are forgiven. In Christ, time and time again, that in Christ, we as believers, as Christians, have this identity that we are called belonging to Christ. But this calling also comes with it uh, a motivation, an action that we are to walk in. Now, the joy of the gospel is that we respond in obedient action because of our identity. It's not the other way around. Paul does not say here that you are to walk in such and such a way so that Christ will identify you as his. And it's important as we get to chapter 4 here, the first sentence of chapter 4 is, is kind of a turning point in the book in the book of Ephesians, because Paul is, is, you know, the first three chapters laying out all of this identity stuff, and he gets more practical in chapters four, five, and six, where he lays out, this is what it looks like to live according to your call. And the crux of the gospel is that we walk in a manner because we have been called, not walk in a way so that you will be identified, so that you will be designated. And Paul even lays it out here. He says, I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. See, I love that that even in his writing of this first sentence is this identity is secured in the goodness of God. The identity you have is secured by the work of Jesus. You have been called. It is a done deal. God in eternity past has looked down and said, you belong to me. You are my child. You are my son. You are my daughter. And the work of Christ secures that identity for us and cannot be taken away. Paul says, you have been called to a calling by God through Christ with the Holy Spirit. Because of that, walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. Now, walking is a, an action, it's something that you do. You do this because of who God has called you to be and how God has called you. We, we walk, we have a responsibility to obey because of the identity Christ secures for us. The first century church in Ephesus was one, as we said numerous times, the, the city of Ephesus was a, a very diverse culture, had uh, arts, education, a thriving economy. It had uh, very diverse religious traditions. And Paul is saying to the first century church, look, you have been called, you've been designated belonging to Jesus now, so your life is going to look a little different. Christ has saved you for eternity, yes, but in the meantime, you are to walk in a certain way. You are to live your life in a different manner in light of this new identity that Christ secures for us. So what I want us to do now, with our time today, and then next week as we continue in chapter 4, is to see what, what is the character of this calling 
right? I mean, if Jesus is merely just to save us, then the moment we believe, we would be sucked up to heaven, right? Like we wouldn't, we wouldn't live life anymore. So there's a, there's a character of the calling that God has called us to live as Christians, that there's a, there's a manner of living, a, a way that we're to walk, to live life, both now and it takes us into eternity. And Paul lays it out here for us. He says, I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love. He goes on to talk of uh, maintaining the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace. There's one body, one spirit, as you have called, been called to one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all, through all, and in all. There's so much good stuff there that we will look more into next week as well, but I want us to camp out on the character of our calling to walk in humility and gentleness with patience, bearing with one another in love. Humility, gentleness, patience, love. Humility is... uh, contrary to the culture in which we live. It is countercultural to the first century church at Ephesus. Imagine being in the first century saying, hey, well, I live in this thriving port city that has a great economy, that has great culture, great religious tradition. It's a great center for philosophy and education. Great pride to be an Ephesian. We find pride emerging in our lives today in very easy ways. It could be personal pride, like, hey, I'm proud to be an American, right? I'm proud because of my education. I'm proud of the job I have. I'm proud of the family that I'm a part of, or I'm proud to live in the neighborhood in which I live. Pride is a Western American virtue. And when we look at the Bible, we see that Scripture teaches that we are to be humble, Right? He who exalts himself will be humbled. He who humbles himself will be exalted. Right? Scripture tells us that uh, we are not to think too highly of ourselves in pride, but we are to be, have a posture and attitude of humility, of a humble spirit toward God and toward each other. One pastor defines humility as not thinking less of yourself, but thinking of yourself less. So here Paul is writing to the first century church in Ephesus and by the Holy Spirit to us today to walk in a manner worthy of the calling, the identity that we have in Christ, secured by God in Christ, the direction and motivation of our lives to be called Christians is to be one characterized by humility. Not thinking less of yourself, but thinking of yourself less. Humility and gentleness often paired with humility there. Gentleness is meekness or kindness. It's not only an action of kindness, but an attitude you have towards someone else. It's a character trait that you cultivate within yourself to have an attitude of thinking of yourself less, thinking toward others. Uh, The kindness you would show both in attitude and word and deed. And Paul is saying, if you have been called... I mean, if Christ has saved you, if God has said, you belong to me, you're my son, you're my daughter, you walk with an attitude of humility and gentleness. Thinking of others, being kind, 
and action and attitude. He goes on to say, with patience, bearing with one another in love. Patience is in the Bible often used as uh, the word for forbearance or long-suffering. It means enduring uh, in the context of trials or adversity. It means uh, not being vengeful when others have wronged you. It means bearing with one another in love. Love being devotion. Affection that goes beyond circumstances. A commitment because the word's agape. (laughs) Because of God's covenant faithfulness to us, we show faithfulness to each other. So we look at this and we say, all right, humility, gentleness, patience, and love. mean, having an attitude, thinking of ourselves less, being kind to each other, enduring trials together, not being vengeful when we've been wronged, and being utterly devoted to God and each other no matter what the circumstances. Does that describe you? Does that describe us together? Does this describe how we are living as those who have been saved by God, who have been called to be in Christ, to walk in a certain way. Is this descriptive of of your life personally? It's not mine. Not all the time. I'm not going to heap a bucket of guilt on you. (laughs) Because I think if we take a step back and we look at this and we say, you know... Sometimes I can act humble, but often I, I, I can't act in a humble manner. Sometimes I can be kind, but not always, and I'm not the most patient person. How much of our love for our Christian brothers and sisters is, is contingent on circumstances, right? Well, as long as you do this, then I love you. But once you do that, dude, you are out. See, I don't want us to despair, I just want us to have a clear picture of who we are and how we are apart from Jesus. Because what happens is sin, our our personal attitudes and fallenness and brokenness will emerge in different ways to keep us from having an attitude of humility and elevating in pride. Keep us from being gentle, kind, and meek, but but thinking of ourselves more and saying, I can't do that. I'm going to hold back on something for somebody else for my own preservation all right, sin emerges as I look, I can't be patient. I can't endure this anymore. Why is this happening to me? Love, yeah, yeah, I'll, I'll, we'll get along in so much as I get something from you, but the second I don't get that from you anymore, I don't love you anymore, right? That's how we are apart from Christ. And the beauty of the gospel is that Jesus saves us, yes, but we have to be reminded of our identity in Christ. That's why we gather on Sundays. That's why we read the word. It's not like you read this once. Commit it to memory and you never have to look at it again. In my 35 years of life, I've probably heard the statement to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. I've probably heard that dozens and dozens of times. I need to hear it again right now. Because in the gospel, we need to be reminded of our identity in Christ, who God is, what he's done for us, who we are, and how we must live in light of that. So when I look at this and ask you, does this describe you personally? Probably doesn't. And here's the test. Is by me saying, does this describe you personally, how do you respond? In pride, saying, of course, of course, I'm the most humble person I know. Well, 
you're not the most humble person anymore, right? Humility is a hard thing because it's so, it's so easy to say, well, I'm so humble. Well, that's the most prideful statement you can make. It's also hard because right now you're probably thinking of somebody, if not yourself, thinking of somebody in your family or someone you work with or someone you go to school with that's prideful. And you're thinking, man, I know this dude, he is so proud. Well, you know what? That's a very prideful statement for you to make because who are you to judge somebody else's pride, right? Hmm. Disclaimer. Pride is probably my biggest vice, right? Pride expresses itself in anger, frustration. I think pride is probably like one of the, like the root attitudes of every other sin that comes out, right? I mean, pride is thinking you know more than God. I mean, that's why Adam and Eve, like, ate the fruit, right? God's like, don't, okay? And they're like, we know better. That's pride, right? Pride is when we think we know better than anyone else or think that we're more important than anyone else, and that affects how we treat each other in kindness, gentleness, right? If we are patient with one another, enduring trials, if we're loving one another. See, I think pride is kind of the, right there. So disclaimer, that's me, right? Pride uh, is tough. So we also looked at sin gets in the way of an attitude of humility, of gentleness, of patience and love. Idols get in the way, right? I mean, idols, things that like take our attention and affection from God. Sometimes it could be yourself. You'd be like, well, I'm just so important. I'm all that bag of chips, right? Idols can be like, you know, uh, your status, your job, it could be your neighborhood, it could be your material possessions, it could be your money, it could be your education, could be your preferences. Right? Well, I prefer, I prefer this style of something. Or I prefer that. And it can become this unfair balance where we judge ourselves in different ways. I mean, it can be uh, what style of clothes you wear, what type of schooling you choose for your children, what type of vehicle you drive, what part of town you choose to live in. It could be personal pride. It could be corporate pride. Saying, well, because I live in this zip code, I'm better than everybody else. Or because I live in this zip code, I'm holier than other people. See, pride can express itself in sin. It can be in idols and preferences and agendas. I think one of the best cultural icons today to show us how this gets in the way is, uh, I think he's one of the top ten influential people in America, Ron Burgundy. If you've seen the movie Anchorman, you know that he has an awesome mustache and lots of cool suits. And he's a self-proclaimed kind of a big deal. Or do you know who I am? Right? If you've seen the movie, you know what I'm talking about. If you've not seen the movie, you should rent it because it's hilarious. And it's a beautiful portrait of how pride and selfishness gets in the way of personal relationships with each other. Right, thinking that you're a big deal because of the mustache you wear or the clothes you wear or the job you have, I'm kind of a big deal, right? And this is all of us apart from Christ. Every single one of us. The moment we take our eyes off of Jesus and we forget who Christ is and what he's done, we forget who we are in light of what he's done, we forget our calling, our identity, we forget our calling, the direction Christ is leading us as his people, the second we take our eyes off of Jesus, sin emerges, Pride erupts in the form of idols or agendas or preferences. And the moment we think we can fix it on our own, we are just digging a deeper hole in our own pride. 
Because is that, is that you? You can read this and say, man, humility, gentleness, patience, love. I need to do better and try harder at these things. So I am going to read this book. Or I am going to do this thing. And in that moment, we find ourselves digging a deeper hole where the, where the remedy we prescribe for ourselves is worse than the disease, right? I mean, we just... So what's the solution? Everybody just go home? and despair that we're all a bunch of prideful, non-gentle, unloving, impatient people? No. Here's the beauty of the gospel. Apart from Christ, we can't live like this. In Christ, we can, because Christ has. Are you with me? In Christ, and this is why Paul commands us here, he says, look it, Inspired by the Holy Spirit, the Apostle Paul is writing scripture to the first century church at Ephesus for us today as well as Christians. Paul is saying, look, I'm a prisoner for the Lord, and I'm urging you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. He's saying, look, God has saved you. Now live like it. God has identified you to be his people. Now live like it. And so for you and I to say, well, Paul does not say, walk in all humility, gentleness, patience, bearing with one another in love. Do that because that's just the right way to live. No, he says, look, you do that because you have been called to live that way. And you are to live in a way according to the identity you have in Christ. He goes on, I mean, we have to see those four things. Humility, gentleness, patience, bearing with one another in love in the context of verses 3 and following. Maintain the unity of the Spirit the bond of peace, there is one body, one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all, through all, and in all. You see, Paul frames it in the context of, of God's redemptive story. He's saying, look, Ephesians, you think you're all that because your economy is so cool? Don't forget that it is the God of the universe that created you that saved your raggedy self, right? I mean, the God that made everything out of nothing, that saved, uh, that preserved Adam and Eve, preserved a remnant for himself uh, through Abraham and all his kids in Genesis, and then you get to Exodus and you see that God saves all these people and leads them through the desert to a promised land and they rebel, and time and time again there's like exiles and invaders and idolatry, and God saves them, says, look, I'm your God, you're my people, I'm going to save you even though you are making dumb decisions, I love you because I'm God and I'm good. And he gets to the first century and says, look, that same God is the God that's saving you, not your economy, not your tradition, not your job, not your skills with a Z. God is saving you because he is good, and you're not. And the God that has saved <laughs> Israel and Exodus is the, God's that's, is the God that is saving you wayward Ephesians. It's the God that is saving you and me. And that puts us in our place lest we think that somehow we're just better than that guy in the Bible or that other person over there or whatever. And then when we look at the God of the universe who created everything out of nothing and has saved his people and have been faithful to his wayward people throughout the Old Testament... We get to Jesus, 
where we see that God says you need to walk in humility, gentleness, patience, and love. You need to have an attitude of that and a lifestyle that looks like that. And we're thinking, man, we, I can't do those four things for my whole life. I can't be humble forever. I can't be kind. I can't be patient. <laughs> I, I can't love unconditionally. I can't have just undying devotion and generosity all the time, no matter what the circumstances. I can't. But look what Jesus does. God, in this great story of redemption, sends his son Jesus the second person of the Trinity, Jesus the Son. He's, he's God, fully God, fully man. Jesus lives the perfect life that we can't. Right? Dies a death in our place. It's like the most, most humbling, kind, loving act that can ever be done. But even before that, Jesus lives his perfect life in all humility and gentleness and kindness to other people. You look at Jesus' teaching in the Gospel Gospels. Look at Jesus' miracles, his acts of service are all stemming from the goodness of God, acts of humility and kindness and patience. I mean, here's one of many examples. And this is how Jesus fulfills the command of humility in our place. We're coming up on Easter here in a few weeks, and you see that, that what we celebrate is Palm Sunday when, when Jesus, the triumphal entry into the city, Matthew 21, 5, uh, the gospel writer is quoting the prophet Zechariah as, as, as Jesus comes into the city. It says, Behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. There's one statement of many about Jesus' attitude of humility. Not, not storming in the city saying, look at me, I'm amazing. He could have done that. He's God. But instead he comes in with an attitude, a posture of humility. Right? Gentleness. What, what we know is kindness or um, meekness. We see in Titus chapter 3, Paul is writing this too. He says, For we, are, we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. Hmm. But when the goodness and loving kindness of our God, our Savior, appeared, He saved us. Not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to His own mercy by the washing and regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior. Again, we see that our Lord is, Jesus is the perfect, humble servant, the perfect, gentle, kind, human, expressing the patience and love of God Psalm 103.8, The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love. Our God is patient. Our God has every right to be vengeful toward his sinful, wayward, stubborn people. But Scripture promises and shows us the character of God is, is patient, he's merciful, he's gracious, he's slow to anger. It's patience in the midst of adversity and rebellion. He's abounding in steadfast love, that agape, that covenant-keeping, 
uh, devotion no matter what. So we look at this and we say, okay, we can't be humble on our own, we can't be gentle, we can't be patient, we can't love on our own, but praise be to God that Jesus does this on our half as the perfect man and walking in all humility and gentleness and patience and love, reflecting the very nature of God on our behalf. The result is that now, in Christ, you have been called. That you have been identified to reflect the character of God saved by Christ. That you were to walk in this manner. The result is a a new identity, a character that is expressed through relationships together in community. It is, is a new way of walking, Paul says. So I love it. Paul says, walk in the manner of humility, patience, gentleness, love. Not because you can do that on your own, but because Christ has done that. Because he says, I'm a prisoner of the Lord. You have been called by this one God, one spirit, one hope, one Lord, one faith, one baptism. So live like it. We're going to get more into this next week of how this fleshes out in the context of community because as Paul is writing to the church at Ephesus, he's not writing to one guy. He's not saying, hey, you, Joe, live like this. He's writing to a context of believers living in community together. Undoubtedly, there's probably not natural unity. Otherwise, he wouldn't have written this letter. (laughs) I mean, they're not just like, hey, we're all Christians. Woo! go. No, there was still dissension. There's still friction. There's still like, hey, we're trying to figure this out. I mean, can you do this and be a Christian? Well, no, you can't. Yeah, you can. All right, boom, let's fight. Paul's like, let me write a letter. People, it's not about you. It's about Jesus. Now live like this. But we can't. Exactly. Look to Christ, right? That's probably how we did it. I'm just... So next week, we're going to look more at the, how this fleshes out in the context of community. Because in order to live lives of humility and gentleness and patience and love, you can't do that by yourself. You can't like go to the hills and just say, I'm a humble, loving, patient person. It just doesn't work. It's weird. So you have to be in a relationship with other people, which is what Paul says here. That's why he says, look, verse 3, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. I love there's a corporate identity of a togetherness, a oneness that we have together. Not sameness, but oneness. We'll talk more about that next week because, because unity does not mean uniformity. It just means that, that we are all looking to Jesus. Like we're all looking the same direction. We're all going the same direction. Some of us walk with a, a limp. Some of us walk with a swagger. Some of us skip but we're all walking in the way that God has called us individually, but we're walking together like corporate, like it's this big parade of fun. If I had to write this, that's what I'd say. You are in a parade. So marching band people, march with your drum, and baton twirlers, twirl your baton, and lazy folk, ride on the float, you know? There's a one-anotherness, a togetherness, a corporate identity of unity together. And I love what Paul says in verse 3. Eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Ah, Peace. Shalom. Right relationship with God. Right relationship with each other. See, there's a togetherness that we, we walk in the character of our calling together. 
And in so doing, we're reflecting the unity of our God. We're reflecting the, the right relationship we have in God with each other. When we humble ourselves in gentleness and patience and love toward one another and say, look, you know, <laughs> I'll just say this. Uh, I should, you know, I, I, none of you should be my friend. I shouldn't have any friends. Uh, but in Christ, there's unity. And in Christ, I can go, we can go to breakfast and talk about what the Lord's doing in each other's lives, and we can look to Jesus and not each other for our salvation. We'll get into that next week. So let me just... Gee, what a downer, right? <laughs> we go write an emo song. I don't have any friends. <laughs> I do have friends. Um... <laughs> All right, so how are we going to do this? I mean, what's the, what's the takeaway? How are we to walk in the manner worthy of our calling here at Redemption Church? That's what we need to get down to, right? This is not an ethereal thing. This is an imperative command. You are to walk. So as we walk physically out of that door, I want to give us a takeaway of, of how personally we are to apply this walking and how corporately this will look for this church to walk in this manner? How, how are we going to walk in humility, gentleness, patience, and love together, okay? Because if I just give you this great idea and send you on your way, um, it's not, it's subpar, so we, we need to take it up a notch and have a little application. So here's a couple things I was thinking about, all right? What does it look like to walk in the manner worthy of our calling to which we have been called? If you are a Christian, you belong to Jesus. Your identity is in Christ, not your sin, not your idols, not your past, not your preferences, not your style. Your identity is in Christ. Now, how that identity plays out and the direction, the calling, the, the direction in which you live may look a little different, right? God has called some of you to be husbands, but not all of you, not yet. God has called some of you to be wives, but not all of you, not yet. Some of you are wives right now. Some of you are not yet wives. Some of you are parents right now. Some of you will be parents one day. So, so the direction of our calling looks a little different uh, depending on stage of life, but our identity is secure in Christ, so, so we're, we're good, right? So here's a few things I was reflecting that I'm trying to apply to myself personally this week, and, and I would encourage you to do the same. Let's do it together as a church called Redemption Church. Giddy up, right? First and foremost, we need constant reminder of our calling, constantly need to be reminded of our identity. And what I mean by that is, is, is this constant reminder of our identity and our direction uh, comes through the Word of God. I encourage you all to be reading the Scriptures personally. Read the Bible. If you need help getting like on a Bible reading plan, let me know. I'll be glad to help you. You don't have to read the whole book of Leviticus today. You can read like one proverb today. You can start small, man. Take small bites and be reminded of God's goodness and, and your identity and, and direction. And out of that, um, so, so you got personal and then incorporately together. That's why we gather on Sundays. There are better preachers you can access via podcast. I know, but it's important that we gather together to be reminded of our identity personally and corporately, right? So it's important that we be in the word, that we worship together. Um, some other things. Obedient action in the context of community. I heard this week, you know, you may have heard the statement, it takes a village to raise a child. Well, I heard a preacher this week say, hey, it takes a church to raise a Christian. And that's true. Unless your name is Jesus, you cannot have a one-on-one -on -one relationship with God. 
for your whole life. It takes other people. God uses other believers in your life to help shape this character of calling, to help you walk. We don't walk alone. It's a parade, not a solo march. Have you seen like one guy in a parade? That just, da, 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 da. So it takes, it takes community. It takes a church to raise a Christian. So that's where we gather together for word, for worship. Here's one. Serve together. And God will teach you so much about humility and gentleness, kindness, like if you have to do it. If you have to think of yourself less and put the needs of somebody else before your own needs, your own comfort. Like, and that can be in different ways. It could be like, you know what? Little kids scare me, but I'm going to go serve over there in Redemption Kids, right? Or, you know what, I'm not good with a hammer and it's cold outside, but man, some folks got out there this weekend and served in a neighborhood together, right? That happens, and that is obedient action. And in so doing, the action, God uses it to cultivate within us humility and gentleness and patience and love. So we worship together, we're in the Word together, we serve together, play together. That's fun. Go play Ultimate Frisbee. Go play soccer. Go play golf. Play Candyland. I don't care. Go do something fun. Uh, Christians should be not only the most servant-minded people, but they should be the funnest people, man. We should have the best parties. We should, we should do fun stuff together. We should just enjoy each other's company. right? So play together. Ooh, here's a big one. I like this one. You're going to like this one, too. Eat together. Amen? right? Eat together. Friends, there's a reason that feasting is from cover to cover in the Bible. I mean, the the Bible is all about food. (laughs) And feasting together celebrates God's goodness to his people, his provision. It celebrates the togetherness that we have. I mean, that's why the the book of Revelation ends with with a marriage supper. Like everybody's at this banquet table just eating, right? It's biblical. And so when we get together to eat, we are reflecting God's goodness and his provision. We're reflecting a togetherness. We're f- reflecting a common... I mean, so much we reflect, man. I don't think it's overthinking it to say, like, when we eat a meal together, we are together saying, we both need food that we can't get, so we're trusting God to provide it. So let's eat this sandwich together. It's very intimate. And so if you have never eaten with another person in this room, you should go do that. And if you need an opportunity, next week we will all be eating together at 1124 Broad Street. Bring something. Somebody bring some meatballs, right? And we will eat together, serve together, play together, worship together. That's all I got. That's not hard, is it? In so doing, we trust that God is at work solidifying the character to which we have been called in the way in which we're to live. If we, I think, are in the Word, worshiping together, serving together, playing together, eating together, I guarantee you, that God will be at work in our midst, hammering some humility into us, some kindness and gentleness, some patience and love. It'll be a beautiful thing. In so doing, we will reflect the Lord to each other, to a lost world. We will experience a great amount of joy. And I'm convinced personal lives will be changed. Marriages will be changed. Families will be changed. Neighborhoods will be changed. This church will be changed. This city and the nations will be changed. I really think so. So let's do it, shall we? Let me pray. 
God, thank you so much for a morning to be in your word. God, as we look at your scriptures, uh, Lord, they're so deep and so rich. And God, we know that a half hour together cannot fully unpack the beauty of the multifaceted jewel of the gospel. But God, as we've had a nugget, a glimpse this morning, God, I pray that you would encourage our hearts with the goodness of Jesus. God, as we celebrate the good news that we have been called in Christ, not because of our own works, but because of the works of Jesus on our behalf, living a perfect life, dying in our place, rising again from the dead, and, and seated at your right hand to rule in authority. God, that is such good news. And may that bring a great amount of freedom from sin and guilt and, and performance-driven fear. And God, may we respond in joy knowing that our calling is secure in Christ. Our identity and the way in which we live is secure in Christ. Now, Lord, I pray that by your spirit you would give us wisdom how to apply uh, the actions of obedience that we are to live, not, not so that you will love us, but because you love us, because you have loved us and accepted us. God, may you give us wisdom in how we're to live. God, personally, and then in the context of a community called Redemption Church. God, I pray that you would encourage us as we uh, seek to develop character of humility and gentleness and patience and love with one another. God, I pray that you would give us uh, great fruit in that area personally, in our marriages and families, in the context of our missional communities and in this church community. God, I pray that in so doing, as we reflect Jesus, that our hearts would erupt with joyful worship together. I pray that uh, the city of Augusta would be changed because of, um, because of your gospel work in us and through us. I pray that it would ripple out in such a way that the nations would be affected. And I pray that all of these things would happen for your glory and our joy and that the good news of Jesus may be known. We thank you in Christ's name. Amen.